0: Welcome back to episode 115 of the LED Project Podcast. My name's Kyle Krieger. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this conversation that follows is with Anika Costa and Paul Gavani, who uh, came on the podcast to talk about uh, ad- applied behavior analysis and organizational behavior management, which is they made so simple uh, in how it can impact teachers and how it can make a difference in our classrooms. We got connected with them because... They're also going to be at AIE in San Antonio, and we wanted to have a conversation with them for our podcast before um, we met up with them, but we're super excited after having a conversation with them to meet up with them in San Antonio and uh, to to get to learn more about um, how applied behavior analysis can work for teachers. So we hope you enjoy this episode, episode number 115 of the LED Project Podcast. Awesome. So if you guys could, you know, just real quick, as we get to know each other and our listeners get to know you, could you talk a little bit about uh, kind of who each of you is and how you got to be doing what you're doing, which is we're excited to connect with you guys uh, in San Antonio next month at AIE.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So I am from a family of educators. Um, My dad is actually a dean. Um, at a local state college here in the area. And my mom is retired 45 years teacher, teaching. Wow. (laughs) So education is sort of like a natural fit for me. Um, But I ended up um, um, getting my bachelor's in um, communication sciences and disorders. So I was a speech therapist working in a school and ended up pursuing a master's in education in New York. Mm -hmm. And while I was doing that, I was introduced to ABA, working as a speech therapist um, in a school for autism. And so that's how I got my introduction to applied behavior analysis. And it was it for me. (laughs) But what was interesting about it is I still kept one hand in behavior analysis, and I also became a certified teacher. So I was a New York City public school teacher for about eight years. Um, and then I went on to um, become a teacher mentor. So I mentored uh, new teachers at my school through the New York City program, mentoring program. And I also worked as a literacy coach. So- <laughs>
0: you've, done, you've done it all in the
2: cl- oh man.
1: I did, and all the while still keeping my toes in behavior analysis.
2: She's still teaching. I'm
1: <laughs> still teaching. She's oh. a
2: teacher of teachers. There,
0: yes. You and know, and that's kind of where we're at, is, you know, moving to that. Because we both, um, my, my co-host wanted to be on tonight, but he's, uh, we created uh, this new after school program we call mu- the Music and Arts Collective, where he's got 45 kids that are doing, like, producing original music and original content across, like, all the arts. And tonight they had their first official meeting, so... He, I, I talked to him a couple minutes ago. He was still there. So that's really cool. But I mean, that's where we are. I think it's really important that teachers are learning. And, and that's why we got into this podcast is just to continue to, to tell teacher stories and, and um, you know, learn. Because I've, I've heard the term applied behavioral analysis before, but I'm not. Um, I mean, I have, I have a, the broad field social studies background. So, I think it goes all the way back to that, like thirteen or fourteen years ago that I heard it in in those classes but i'm I'm really interested to hear you know how teachers can use it so yeah, what about you paulie?
2: Um, oh yeah, so uh you know one of my earliest memories of uh you know when folks ask me what do you want to do when you get older i don 't know eight or nine years old uh, I was always just kind of curious why people did what they did you know from an early age, and I also liked the uh, helping people. I was always like the guy that people would want to come talk to. Um, so kind of a natural field that I gravitated to was social work. So I went on to get my uh, master's degree in social work and then I stumbled across this thing uh, where somebody said, Hey man, you get like 50 bucks an hour to go. Uh, if you go take these classes and, and uh, learn about, you know, behavior issues. So I'm like, well, I can do that. I'm, I'm the, I'm, you know, I'm a therapist. I'm the clinical coordinator for a uh, uh, SED school. Um, so I took this class and I was like, wow, this isn't just like your, you know, run of the mill class on behavior. This is a whole new language. It was literally like having like, uh, glasses that you've been looking through, through your life that are foggy and suddenly they're cleansed and you start to see everything that you do, everything that people do around you completely differently. Um, and so, um, anyway, so I learned that science and I wasn't really surrounded by, um folks that were in the science I was surrounded by a bunch of folks in mental health who are very well meaning you know have big hearts but they were missing that piece because it's it's unusual when you kind of understand the science and other people don't they think differently about things than you do and you want to help them you want to educate them but they don't have that background they can just they judge things based on their experience and their history. Um, so again, we're looking through that lens. So I went on to do different things in, you know, education, um, uh, you know, was a clinical coordinator behavior analyst, ended up being assistant principal, uh, managed a turn school turnaround team, went on to be a COO of a company that served uh, that had a school and a clinical side of it. And right now I'm the director of uh, school improvement. So, um, but the, the science is, uh, it's amazing everything I do and I'm doing a lot of different things. I'm not going to go through my whole bio, you know, I'll send it to you. You can share it with folks, but uh, everything is rooted in the science, man. The science can help anybody anywhere do anything.
0: Yeah. You know, and and just talking a little bit and looking through your, your, your bios and the work you're doing, I think what can be hard for teachers like that example is it's such an emotion and emotionally driven job. And we're so emotionally connected and I, I can admit, like, I'm one, I'm so emotionally driven that I'm like, yeah, science, like all that stuff, that's, I, I can, I would have thought I could overcome this just by energy and work. But I mean, there's so much that you can gain and that you can learn. So just, just curious. So this is a question we always ask everyone. Do you have a, a favorite teacher that comes to mind when you think of a teacher that really impacted you?
2: Yeah, um, so uh, my favorite teachers are more recently. I definitely, man, I think I have such respect for teachers. Um, I believe that they can change the world, you know, and I believe that, you know, we really need to invest more in education. And we're going to talk a little bit about that more. Um, but I have mad respect for good teachers. Um, but my teachers, the ones that impacted me were more recent when I you know, went on to get my doctorate. Uh, two, uh, one is a uh, Dr. Gallery, Tom Gallery, and he was actually a principal of a school, and he was actually a teacher in my uh, educational specialist program, um, so in, uh, in leadership, but he had a major impact on me, very authentic, uh, very upbeat, um, brilliant guy, uh, mm-hmm. just, you know, really was strong in statistics, uh, but he had a major influence on me and actually got me to go back to my doctorate, and then went off my doctorate, um, a guy named Dr. Alex Edmonds, uh, Again, kind of a young-looking guy. He's actually a couple years younger than I am, very authentic, and uh, it was like an expert in deliberate practice and a self-efficacy, which is uh, your belief in your ability to accomplish some task. Um, there's some good you know, research on it by Albert Vendera, but even that's rooted in the science of behavior. Um, so he impacted me, just the way that you know, he spoke to people, he was authentic, and I very, I very much value authenticity. So, uh, you know, they really, I uh, went on to, you know, be good friends with Alex. Uh, we've written a lot of articles together. We're actually, you know, going to be collaborating on a book coming up as, as wedding. But these guys are great people, and uh, they didn't just influence me, but they're influencing generations of people, and uh, I love that.
0: Mm, nice. How about you?
1: Yeah, so, um, again, my uh, teacher, teacher, one of my favorite teachers, I guess he's more of like a mentor to me. More recently, as I was going through certification and and becoming a newly minted BCBA, um, she really pushed me to do new things. Dr. uh, Gina Feliciano, she actually works um, at PSAC. It's also um, a non for profit um, school who um, works with individuals with developmental disabilities and autism. And um, she pushed me to go back. You know, into schools and use the science in the schools. Um, she actually kind of pushed me to go and present at these, you know, big scary conferences as <laughs> a right. new BCBA, um, and she really shared her love um, of the science, behavior analysis, with me. And today, to this day, she is she is still my mentor and, and a coach for me. And I think that's an important part of you know for me at least you know having that you know favorite teacher was someone who coached me you know and gave me feedback you know and kind of you know pushed me to do some new things and try some new things
0: right right so in your work um, you know with what you're doing and bringing value to educators, what do you see in, you know, we'll just kind of say the K-12 side of it. What do you see is as the value of the, you know, the really great teachers that are out there right now? How, what, what impact are they having?
2: What was the last part you said there? What impact?
0: Like uh, the great teachers that you see and you work with, what impact are they having?
2: Oh, I mean, man, I, like, I really believe that one teacher can, they change generations of people. If you can impact one student, find value in them where they don't see value in themselves, help them to see that they can actually do it, help them create some sort of vision, you know, instill like that self-efficacy in them for, you know, going to school, being successful, having goals in life. Um, This one child can go back and impact again, their family, uh, you know, their media family, their future family, the generations of people around them. So that's the power of an educator. Very, very powerful. So, um, I just, you know, they're a good. You cannot even put value on what a good educator can do, how they can impact the world. So I really believe that we have to do a much better job. And again, we'll talk about this shortly in in preparing and supporting educators because we're not. Yeah. Anything you'd like to add to that?
1: No, I think probably covered
0: it. We talk about it a lot. We love <laughs> we teachers, do. and
2: we love school leaders too.
0: Yeah. So I'm interested kind of I, I I wrote the question to ask you about how your how your partnership kind of, you know came together but I'd really also kind of like to know how you how you when you're presenting as a pair how you kind of put those things together cuz my my partner and I Wilkie we we this is probably like our sixth or seventh time presenting and we're kind of like just starting to get how how to not like jump over each other and do those things. So I'd love to hear that too, not only how your partnership came together, but but how you create those presentations together. Cause I think it'd be valuable for us as two people, but I think there are so many teachers that are out there co-teaching that, I mean, I think that lesson can be valuable too. So, how yeah.
1: so <laughs> I was consulting um, in a school, um, in a district, a local district in our area and Polly was assigned as the behavior analyst. So we actually collaborated in an ASD classroom. So it was, it was actually some really good synergy because I'm very clinical, right? So I've worked in ASD classrooms, you know, I was a classroom teacher. Polly was, you know, he came in and you know, he's a behavior analyst, but he has more of that OBM or organizational behavior management background. Or at the time, I had really no experience in OBM. And Polly came in and he really kind of honed in on what the classroom needed in terms of, you know, procedures and structures and, and performance of the teachers, of the staff, and that, that training and coaching in the classroom. So we kind of formed, I guess, like a really like professional friendship. And it kind of took off from there. So when I went back to get my certification in OBM, Organizational Behavior Management, he was my mentor. <laughs> I would pick his brain because I was consulting in these school districts, you know, and our company, Positive Behavior Support, Corp we had acquired these very large um, contracts with schools to come and help support <clears throat> their teachers and staff, and I, <laughs> I needed help. Perfect. So, um, yeah, kind
2: it's... of
1: just it kind of just fell into place.
2: Yeah, my my approach. Uh... When I, when I started to come work in schools, they had thrown me into, like, high-poverty schools. And they said, hey, can you come work with this child? So I go into the classroom and look at the child. And uh, what I quickly realized that if you, I'm working with a child, I'm like, all right, this child's having some behavior problems. But then I would look over at what the teacher was doing, right? And a lot of the teachers in these high-poverty schools were first- and second-year teachers. So then I started to kind of realize that, you know, it's not just this one teacher. It's a lot of teachers. So when I saw that many teachers that were being ineffective working with these kind of challenging kids, I thought, you know what? There's something different here. There's more to this. There's like a systemic issue here because if we're going to bring out the best in the students we have to bring out the best in the teachers. And if we're going to bring out the best in teachers, we have to bring out the best in the school leaders. If we're going to bring out the best in the school leaders and teachers, we got to bring out the best in the professors and the policymakers. So there's a whole chain of behaviors, but unfortunately the teachers are the ones that are always being held accountable and the school leaders. But, you know, teachers are coming into the field unprepared to meet the demands of the classroom from what we believe is that they're getting far too much theory Mm-hmm. Far too little repetition with feedback right. and actual uh, instructional skills or leadership skills associated with achievement. And so uh, one of the analogies I make, and we'll, we'll talk about this I think a little bit later is that as a professional, uh, as a former fighter and professional uh, mixed martial arts coach, uh, I cannot tell my fighter how to fight and even show him how to fight. Then throw him in the cage or the ring, and expect that he can fight successfully. And then if he's in there He's going to be trying to defend himself with whatever he can do to keep safe. And now if I'm trying to coach him or give him some feedback, he's not going to learn under those conditions because it's too stressful. So I strongly believe this is happening in education. I'm not saying it's happening in all schools, right, because they they do have some good institutes of higher education. But uh, Anik and I talk about this a lot. Um, They really have to change the education model. And they have to kind of reverse it. They need to do stuff like either medical or vocational where we're getting – their teachers are getting more hands-on because we have – we're spending, you know, uh, upwards of $7.7 billion a year because of teacher turnover. And up to 50% of teachers are leaving the field. And in high poverty schools, I've seen research up to 65%. So that's inside of five years. And that's not after being successful. That's when they're not being successful. So that means our students aren't getting what they need and the emotional toll, the draining toll it's taking our teachers, leaders, leaders are leaving uh, 70% are leaving inside of three years because they're not being successful. So we have to look at the root cause and schools are being blamed a lot. Teachers are being blamed. Uh, School leaders are being blamed. Even district leaders are being blamed. But if you're throwing a bunch of folks into these situations after they're just getting theory... research on it's very clear and that is that theory or even modeling does not transfer into skills or performance in the classroom if that makes sense
0: you know and and that's the thing too like my story is i i grew up small town wisconsin i went to college at a small school in minnesota and my first job was an urban job in houston i was completely unprepared i mean granted like my program in minnesota Didn't anticipate that I would leave and choose a job in Houston, but it was just and and I've looked back. You know that was I guess now going on ten years ago that I left and there's just I wish I knew now. I I wish I had the the seven years of experience I had down there and I could go back and start again because I didn't understand. You know, like the like you were talking about just the behaviors of those kids. They're It's the
2: basic stuff. I mean, you know, the science tells us about that. When we talk about the science of human behavior, we're not just talking about, again, the behavior of the students. We're talking about the behavior of the adults, right? It all is linked, you know. It all comes back to behavior. Everything comes back to behavior. So, you know, if adults aren't aren't performing well, there's only two reasons. It's either it can't do or it won't do, and that's it. They either don't have the skills to do it, or they're not seeing the impact; they don't have the motivation, so they're not seeing the positive outcome of it. They're not getting adequate feedback from the leaders or the coaches that are supporting. They don't have goals; they have too many things that they have to work on. So there's, you know, there's a whole science behind uh, performance acceleration. And uh, Nick and I like to refer to it as coaching. You know, so once you train somebody and train somebody, there's science behind that. You know, developing proficiency giving them written instructions, uh, giving modeling for them, giving them lots of repetition with feedback, right? So that's skill acquisition. But skills do not transfer into the school setting or the educational setting. That's been very clear too. If uh, Joyce and Showers has some great research, uh, 2002, talks about the transfer of skills after training. And what they say is that they're only getting about a 10 to 15% transfer of skills, even if they're getting good training, right? So the only way you can help uh, skills transfer, and again, I make the analogy of my fighter, is that once I develop their skills and maybe I'm doing lots of repetition on the bag, they're getting mid-work, they're learning to move their head, so I know they can actually perform that skill. Now I have to build, so they have the declarative knowledge, they know you know, what they, what to do, they have the procedural knowledge, they know how to do it. Now we have to build that conditional knowledge. You have to do the right thing in the right way, and this needs to happen more in education. If we want teachers to come on the ground running and that is not happening. And I don't know what's like in Wisconsin, but in Florida, as you mentioned, right now there's over 100,000 shortage of teachers across the United States. In Florida, all you need to do is take a test, take a, an exam to go into the classroom and teach. And that is not a measure of teaching. In higher education, and I want you to think about this for a second, one of the things where that professors are measured on, the big thing, is not the performance, right, the outcomes of the teachers or the school leaders, it's publications. So there's no contingencies for the professor. So they're going to do what they need to do to get tenure, right, to keep their jobs. So they're not coming out. People aren't coming out or they're not being uh, judged or measured in any way based on the performance of their students at higher education. It's not their fault because this is policies of higher education. But the teachers now are being measured by the performance of their students. So that needs to come from the top down and it's not, it's all falling in the back of teachers and taxpayers
0: and our kids. Yeah. You know, we always joked about uh, if you drive downtown, if you drive from north, north of Houston into downtown Houston, there are billboards that say want to teach question mark. When can you start? Wow. And you know, that's just, and it's the same in Texas. Um, once you get the, the pedagogy license, I'm a social studies guy. But if I could have passed a physics test, I could have taught physics without any academic background.
2: Listen, man, sometimes they just want a warm body in a class. They have a bunch. Of, we, in the high poverty schools I worked, worked in, we had like out of, you know, 30 teachers, you know, eight of them, 10 of them were substitutes because they couldn't get folks to come in there. Mm-hmm. So you think about those kids all year long are getting substitute teachers and they already have everything stacked against them. They're already coming from poverty. Their parents came from poverty. There's just this vicious cycle and they can't get out of it. And and, and in areas that we've worked at, it's not homeogeneous, like across the tracks are like more affluent kids. And there's some good research uh, that that talks about diversifying the socioeconomic makeup of these schools, right? So you're, you're bringing more affluent kids, with less influ- affluent kids. And they learn from each other. Uh, Anique and I were talking about this the other week. And like, you know, I was like the only, one of the only guys in my crew that actually went to college. And, you know, my first semester of college, I got two Fs, a D, and a C. I did terrible, you know, uh, because I did not see college of anything of value to me. What, what I saw was that if I didn't go to college, I was going to get in trouble with for my folks. They always told me I need to go to college, you know. So I didn't find value of it. Uh, In it. However, if you grow up in an area where your friends are talking about college, they're talking about dreams and goals, you start to believe that way and think that way. And these poor kids in poverty, they do not have that benefit. All they see is poverty, all they see are those things around. So this is how they start to behave and this is how they start to think. So
0: I guess, you know, we've talked about a lot, but can we just could you clarify for me and, and for our teachers what applied behavior analysis is and, and what they stand to gain by, by learning it and practicing it?
2: Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so first of all, applied behavior analysis is the science of human behavior pretty much for uh, you know, making a positive uh, outcome for somebody. So, uh, uh, you know, contrary to popular belief, um, All behavior occurs because of the environment. And now people argue that, you know, left and right. So I'm going to give you an example. All all behavior occurs for these two reasons, to get something or to get away from something. And that is it. And that is all. Unless it's reflex, there is nothing else. So you might be thinking, I don't do things just to get something. I don't do things just to get away from something. So I want you to think, and I want your viewers or listeners to think about this. Why does the infant child cry? And I'm posing this question to you. Why does an infant child cry? they
0: want something or they're there. They haven't gotten something or there's some, there's some kind of, I, yeah, you're right. I guess either they want to get something or they want to get away from something. I guess if they've got a wet diaper they can't really get away.
2: Exactly. So what we learn as adults, so we learn complex chains of behavior in order to get our needs met. We learn to delay gratification, but we still, our behavior constantly, all behavior occurs because it's reinforced and that's it, and that's all. It's either positive reinforcement, in other words, when we behave some way, there is something added as a result of it, or there's negative reinforcement. If we behave some way, something is subtracted as a result of that, okay? So I'm going to give you a good example, and the whole, the powerful thing is positive. The only, our goal with working with our children, our goal with working with adults is to bring out the best, people right what we call discretionary effort to get people to go above and beyond right to value something right be inspired by that thing by these naturally occurring consequences if i behave this way if i do this thing i get some sort of meaningful result that i want does that make sense you mm-hmm. know it's not right away but i see some sort of indicator that lets me know that that's going to happen negative reinforcement like if you've ever worked for a boss and that boss drives you they tell you you have to do that because or else the most you're going to get out of people doing that is compliance. People will do just enough to get by and only when that leader's watching. So here's a good example of that. When you drive down the highway, you're doing the speed limit. Why are you doing that speed limit? I don't want to get a ticket. That's right. Your behavior of driving the speed limit under those conditions is your behavior is operating under negative reinforcement. So you're avoiding or subtracting the possibility that you're going to get a ticket. However, let's say you come down to sunny Florida. And you're driving down the beach, and you're driving speed limit or even slower. You're not worried about getting a ticket. You're actually driving that because you're getting something added as a result. You're taking in the sights, the views. You're enjoying yourself, right? right? So no matter what you do, and all our behaviors under multiple contingencies, we're getting things. You know, you come to work because you value helping kids. You know, it's good to just, you know to help them achieve, uh, but also you got to pay bills, and you don't want to lose your house or your car, and all these things. You know, there's all sorts of multiple things. So in order to change behavior, people try to tell people what to do. Telling people what to do is what we call antecedent strategy. It's intended to get behavior going, right? It gets it moving. If I, if I give you training and I say, here's what you need to do, tell you how to do it, um, the goal is to get you to try it. But the only thing that's going to maintain your behavior are the consequences that occur as a result of it, okay? So if I show you a, a, a questioning strategy as, as a teacher, And you go in there and you use this strategy and you're able to observe your students are more engaged. You're seeing their behavior has improved as a result of it. You're seeing some sort of positive outcome in terms of some sort of measure, some sort of formative assessment. It's going to increase the likelihood you are going to use that questioning strategy again because your behavior has come into contact with naturally occurring positive reinforcement, which is this is the gold standard. Not somebody coming out, patting you on the back, telling you you're doing a great job. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing giving praise, right? But the goal is to get people in touch with those naturally occurring things that are happening so you don't always have to pat somebody on the back. The same way with kids. We want that grade to be a reinforcer for them. But some people say you shouldn't give candy. You shouldn't get points. You shouldn't do any of these things. Well, if that grade, if that outcome is not a reinforcer, in other words, the kid doesn't find it valuable to them, what do you have in terms of motivation? You have to have some sort of motivation for them to want to do something. So initially, you might do something contrived. It might be you as a teacher, you as a leader, saying, hey, you can do it, you know, and you develop some relationship for for them. They're doing it just because of you. But now they've done it and they see they can do it. Their parents are happy. They're giving that grade. You know, they're feeling part of their peers and they're connected with it. Now they're getting in touch with naturally occurring positive reinforcement. And that is the ultimate goal. So people misunderstand the science human behavior. I hear see people writing about it all the time. They write about it wrong. They just don't understand it. The, the science human behavior is at every leadership theory that you've ever read, it's a, it's one of the first sciences of instruction and learning. So everything is rooted in the science. Does that make sense? I gave you a lot of stuff yeah. there.
0: Oh, no, and, and I'm just... Thinking back to examples in my own life and, you know, the part you said about why why teachers come in and I, you can tell the difference between the teacher who comes because that's what they want to do. And yes, you know, we need to pay bills, but the hardest sometimes is to work with those teachers who are coming only because they need to pay the bills.
2: Right. And so the ones that are coming for that other reason, they value it because they value they value seeing student achievement. They value helping them. So nobody's got to come around. They're the ones reaching out, asking questions, trying to become better. But other teachers come in, and it's not that they're bad people. They, there's there's uh, some research uh, called stages of concern. So it's like new teachers come in, and what, what do they value? So in, in our field, we call that like a reinforcer survey. Here, if you're a new teacher coming in, you're brand new, you're afraid. Like you, you want to know what you need to do just not to get in trouble. You're not looking at like these high level engagement strategies, instructional strategies right now because you need to kind of do this first. If I'm a fighter, I'm getting in the ring or the case for the first time. I just want to know what to do in order to kind of, you know, not get hurt, not get hit in the head before I can do that, you know, magic combo or whatever, you know? So the first things first. So it's like scaffolding. You have to scaffold. You have to give these folks these things that are meaningful to them. And if it's helpful to them, if you're a leader, they're going to be more likely to follow your direction and instruction. And if it's not too hard to implement, the book I wrote is called Quick Wins, one of them, and it's about getting people in touch with something that has a meaningful and visible outcome for people, and that doesn't take them a lot of effort to do. And it might not be the great thing that you want, but what it will do if you're like a leader or a coach, it will increase the likelihood that they will follow your instruction or your help in the future because you've established yourself as a reinforcer or somebody that can help them.
0: Yeah. Okay, so then how does... Organiz- organizational behavior management fit in, you know, in that environment piece? Because you've been talking about envi- um, behavior occurs based on environment. So I, I hear the word organizational and I get like tingly because I'm not good at organization. So,
2: <laughs> me neither, dude.
0: Don't worry. I'm, I'm learning a lot in this. It's really Like you said, in what I read that you sent me, you know, we, we all know environment is so important, especially the positive environment. So I'm kind of interested now to hear how you know,
2: the organizational part works? Well, so uh, I want to come back because I talked a lot about some things broadly. I just want Anika to talk very briefly about what it would look like to like, say, work with a child who had ASD, right? Who, who you know, who was, uh, had, had autism. So, because it, it, the same principles apply to working with an individual child to teach them language yeah. as would be to work with an organization. So um, what would it look like to maybe teach a child, you know, to speak or...
1: Well, that's that's a very broad. broad. Right. Pick something. <laughs> you got to mine that down. Pick, a little
2: pick bit. one behavior, you know, to learn red, the color red.
1: Okay. To to learn red.
2: Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So you working? You ever work with a child uh, ASD child? I, I well, I have, but they were in the
0: older grades, so I wasn't doing. A, they were more um, in a common. They were in a regular classroom with support for me. So
2: you have children that come in and they can't. Identify. We call it tactic They can't. They don't know red. They don't know how to request something that they want, right? So Anika will come in and have to teach them those basic things. If they can't request what they want, you're not going to get them to the point to red. What the heck do they care about red, right? So how would you teach somebody to get what they want? To
1: get what they want? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot that's involved in that, right? And we won't go into those specific details. But basically, it's it's through reinforcement. So we're going to start with motivation. So if I'm going to teach someone how to ask for something they want, I'm going to start with their favorite things, right? So I'm going to do an assessment to determine those things that kind of float their boat, right? That are going to get their, get them going. So if I know a kid, you know, really likes, I don't know, I'm going to use Skittles, right?
2: Skill therapy. <laughs> the Skittle
1: therapy. Skittle yeah, therapy, right? You so get I'm going to Skittles. If I know a kid really likes Skittles, then that might be the first thing that I teach them to ask for, Right. And that's through, you know, a variety of what we call trials or teaching trials, right? And there's a whole specific systematic way that we do that. But, yeah, I'm going to start with the reinforcers. I'm going to start with the motivation, the motivators, right? Things are going to, you know, get them to request, right? Get them to engage in that behavior that I want.
2: Yeah, you're not going to teach them, what do they care about math? You know, they don't care about that stuff, right? Right. You teach them to do that. Now, once you've identified the reinforcer, then what?
1: So once you've identified, so you use that reinforcer, right? So you, that's what you use to teach, right? But you're also not going to just stop there. You're going to look at other reinforcers, right? But then you're gonna take that what we call primary reinforcer, right? So that Skittle, right? That thing to get that behavior going. We're gonna take that and we're gonna pair it with more natural reinforcement, right? Which is the, I like the way you're working, right? So we're going to take that reinforcer. So now we're going to introduce different skills and we're going to use those reinforcers to teach, right? To build those skills.
2: And when we right? say teach, like they do something. So, all right, if it's touch red, let's say a child, you're trying to get them to learn their colors, right? They would literally take their hand and do a full prompt and you would touch red and then you would give them a reinforcer, right? Mm-hmm. So then you say touch red and you would take their hand and do it. And then you give them a reinforcer and then it might be touch red. Now you kind of start to push their hand that way. Right? So we start to shape, we start to fade these prompts out with the goal being that you say touch red and that's the natural cue and they can touch it automatically. But it started with you giving them an immediate reinforcer in that full physical prompt. And this is how you learn. You learn and we all learn the same way. We do something and it might be an accident, but we get in touch with some sort of reinforcement and we're going to be more likely to do it again. Or as we get older, we learn, like, vicariously. We see other people so doing we learn things.
1: By, yeah, people yeah. modeling. So yeah. we look at other people's behavior, right? So what happens when we go into the gym and we don't know how to use a machine, right? So we're going to look over here to the to the right and to the left. Oh, okay, that's how I do that thing. Okay, now I think I can do that, right? So we learn from our environment. Yeah.
2: So the same thing applies to organizational behavior management. So, uh, you know, if you're going to have an organization, the first thing you have to know is, like, you know what are the reinforcers? You know, and we have a generalized reinforcer that's money. People will come for money, right? But if you don't have enough money, are you going to get people? Like, if they tax teachers at ten thousand dollars, you know, off of what they're making, you'd have a lot of teachers leave. Not that because they don't love teaching, but they need to have enough reinforcement to come. When when effort required, right, or the aversiveness gets greater than the reinforcement available you will get people escaping. They're going to leave. It's as simple as that, that little visual there when it gets greater than the reinforcement that's available. That's why some people stick in crack jobs because that reinforcer for them, right? Money might be very valuable. Then you have people who say that, you know what? There's not enough m- money in the world to get me to stay there because they might value being spoken to you know, like a person, which most people do, right? Like a human. They, Yeah, they value, like, I'm coming in here to teach, but I'm not being successful, and I really want that to happen, but I don't believe I can do it. I'm not getting touched with the reinforcement of my students being successful because I wasn't trained well enough. Uh, if I trained you, if you were under a bad uh, coach or trainer and I threw you into the cage and you took a beating, you're going to think... I can't really do this. This is not for me. I'm not a fighter, which that's not true. I just did not train you effectively. I threw you under those conditions. So you don't get in touch with that good feeling that other fighters might get. Not because you can't do it, because you weren't properly trained and didn't get you in touch with that reinforcer. If that child that was touching the red, if I didn't do that full hand over hand prompt and I just said, touch red, touch red, how are they going to do it? Or if I always take their finger and have them touch red every time, they get what we call prompt dependence. In other words, they always depend on you to tell them what to do. And this happens all all the time. Do you use a GPS? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So I use a GPS all the time, yeah, constantly. I'm still using it in my own community. Why? Because the GPS always tells me where to go, and I don't have to think for myself. So I never develop those kind of neural pathways in my brain, right? I don't strengthen those, so I become dependent. Kids become dependent. Adults become dependent. When they're always coming to ask you, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Good leaders ask good questions, right? Because they get them to think, problem solve, make decisions. And same thing in education, in the classroom, good teachers Ask good questions, higher order thinking, right? Engage the learner in thinking so they can learn to problem solve, make decisions on their own, right? And be effective and get in touch with reinforcement. Oh, oh, I was able to solve this problem. I was able to, you know, do this or do that or do the other. So, uh, you know, it all comes back to the, you know, the basic science of getting these guys in touch with reinforcement. What behavior do you want? What, you know, what outcome, what result do you want? What behavior is going to lead to that result? How are we gonna have some sort of measurement to let you know that we're moving closer to that result? How are we gonna give you feedback regarding the result and regarding the behavior, right? Here's the result, here's the behavior moving towards it, right? Because you can't, if you have measure but it's not being fed to you, then you're not gonna know if you're moving and what kind of reinforcement. And feedback, when it's new behavior, it's critical that it become very frequent. Think about you know, a children riding a bike, you know. You are on them. That's a good idea shaping. You're holding them. You're moving them around, right? You're making sure they're not falling. And then you start to falling. You start to let them go a little bit. Then you hold them and you guide them, right? So you're fighting. You know about this guided practice. You know, I do, we do, you do, you know? We begin to fade those things out. But when it comes to feedback, if you're not getting feedback frequently when it's a new behavior, you're not going to learn. Now, I'm going to use that GPS analogy. Have you ever been to a big city and used a, a GPS Yes, sir. What if GPS is only telling you where to go every 10 minutes? You'd probably be in trouble.
1: Yes, you'd be going around in circles.
2: So if you're learning a new skill, you need lots of feedback early on. And then that feedback gets faded as you begin. And at first we're telling you, go left, go right, go the other way, right? But in teaching, whether you're a leader, working with somebody, a coach, whether you're a teacher working with children, now you fade to asking, right? So I've told you what to do. You've demonstrated you have the skill. Now I say, tell me... You know what are you doing? What are you hoping to gain here? You know what are you seeing as a result of your behavior? What might you try next? So ask these questions to get people engage people in the work to get them to uh, learn for themselves.
0: You know, and I was just the whole time thinking about that feedback and you know thinking about your analogy of a fighter. Not just how many teachers get into the ring that first time and just get beat up, but also how many kids are in our classrooms that you know the first few times they really challenge, or they go into difficult classes, or you know they get beat up a little bit, and they think I'm never going to be good at math. I'm never going to be good at that. And you know the the reinforcement, you know, it makes sense because I I know I struggle with that too of really being able to reinforce kids all the time, and not that I didn't want to, but you just had the assumption that like they know they're getting it, they know this, they you know they're they're displaying, but.
2: Yeah. They, they come in. It's, man, teaching is complex, man. It's hard. Mm-hmm. It's engineering, you know? And, you know, again, it comes back. Anika and I are going to be pumping out an article uh, this month. It's, uh, it's about performance issues, you know, like why won't they do it and what to do? So it's, it could be, it's going to be, one's going to be for like leaders working with teachers, but it's almost like a self-assessment for leaders. Hey, does the teacher have this? Does they have this? You know, part of it is like, are you giving the teachers these things? And same thing for teachers with their students. If your child's not doing it, it's either they can't do or you won't, or they won't do. And how do you assess that, you know, because it's a different approach. If they can't do it, yelling at them, you know, and, which is never a good idea. You're not um, going to
1: get the outcome.
2: Yeah, you're not going to get the outcome. In fact, you might get people yell not because they're bad people, but because they get a short-term outcome, right? What they see is suddenly the kids are sitting down, they're listening, and that is a reinforcer to them, right? It's a negative reinforcement because they're avoiding things. So it increases the likelihood that they're going to do that in the future because they see it work. But it's a short-term outcome because just like like, a leader yelling at employees, people will do just enough to get by and it becomes that negative reinforcement thing in compliance and in education, people will leave. And that's why we have such high attrition, right? Bad leaders, they don't mean to be bad. They just don't know better because what they're seeing is immediate outcome. And they don't understand the science of human behavior.
1: Right, they don't understand that you're not teaching the person what it is that you want them to do. You're not teaching them any new behavior,
0: right? Right. So when so when you're working with teachers, do you have to change it if you're working with say elementary teachers versus middle and high school teachers or is are the principles basically the same, you know, across the board?
1: The principles are the same, right? So we would go in and train and and coach Um, a teacher an elementary school teacher the same way we would a secondary school
2: teacher right yeah and and you're not gonna you know the principles of learning are the same it all comes back to that but we're not gonna tell you like there's you know the top topography what it kind of looks like you have your style of teaching you know fundamentally you know just like fighters have their own style of fighting like mike tyson fought one way and muhammad ali fought another way right it's a style So, you know, some teachers are very sweet, you know, and they're like, oh, you did such a great job, second grade. But you might have like a guy who's an athlete that comes in and says, you know, just kind of looks at it, you know, one of the students and gives them a little nod of the head and maybe a little fist pump. And that could be a huge reinforcer for them, you know. So they might have different styles, but the principles are the same, you know. What result you want, what behavior, right, does the child need to do to reach that result? How are you going to measure it? How are you going to give them feedback on it? And what kind of reinforcement are you going to get them? Uh, for doing that thing and if they don't if the grade's not reinforcing for them you've got to contrive some reinforcers in the meantime right. and that might be to you just them, saying man. you're doing amazing keep it up to get them because a lot of these kids don't believe they can do it especially if they had bad teaching early on and they start to fall behind right. and in our science what we talk about is building something uh, called behavior cusp it's kind of a complex thought but it's like something that if you do this one thing it's going to get you in touch with being successful in lots of other areas okay so if it's my fighter, it's about shifting your weight. If you shift your weight appropriately, all your punches and all your defenses come off of that one shift. If it's learning uh, if it's learning uh, different words, right, if, I, if we teach like 40 blends, right, instead of teaching like uh, five, we can actually teach children I think like 50,000 words or might be 500,000 words by teaching these 40 blends. It doesn't make sense to teach them those 500,000 or even 50. 50,000 sight words, right? I want to focus on these key behaviors that are going to lead to multiplication of all these other things. So I know, you know, one of the things we talk about is like, what is something important to, uh, for children to learn? What do we want to teach them? That's like self-management skills. That's a behavior custom. They learn how to delay gratification. They learn to, you know, target a result, what they want. They learn to be a good observer of their own behavior and their movement towards those, right? They learn how to seek out feedback, whether it's feedback, their self or asking feedback self-management is critical for, for moving through life so that's definitely a behavioral cusp just the same way like crawling is a behavioral cusp you know crawling leads to walking walking leads to you know getting you into all sorts of other things other environments right
1: just like phonemic awareness right To for our elementary school teachers out there right our k teachers k12 teachers phonemic awareness right learning those blends like polly says those are behavioral cuffs right to reading essentially right
2: it all connects. So these simple things connect to all these other things. Hmm. So I'm interested, Polly. you know, how, how does your experience as a trainer help you when working with teachers? Well, it's huge. Well, first of all, we're both trainers. We're trainers in a different way, but you mean as a fight trainer. Yeah, sorry. Um, as yeah, an MMA trainer. You know, so I think both of what we both done, because she's worked with, you know, individually with children a lot, and I've worked with, you know, like adults and fight, fighters, and you really get to see it in its purity right? You get to see behavior changes and purity. And this is where I kind of came up with this concept about, you know, what I call Darwinism in education, right? Teachers are being dropped in to fend for themselves and only the strong survive. And that's not true. That's not who's surviving. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what I can see is that when I train my fighters, I have to develop skill acquisition. And my, I, I have a book coming out at the end of this year with Dr. Nick Weatherly, and it's about transferring those skills. It's called deliver coaching. So training somebody again is about skill acquisition. So, we haven't assigned something called behavior skills training. We're not talking about misbehavior. It's just like we're, we're developing skills. And again, it comes with for instruction, modeling, uh, rehearsal with feedback. And that's what we do in martial arts. This is what we do a lot. But what I, what I noticed was that I would train my fighters very well and they'd have a good skill. Then I'd put them into the cage and they wouldn't perform very well. So I'm like, well, you're doing out here, but you're not doing there. What gives? And this is where I had to start to look through this kind of scientific lens and figure out I've got to put them under conditions where they can practice one or two skills, right? We develop one or two habits at a time successfully. And then I chain on other skills. If I throw everything at them, they're not going to learn anything, right? If everything's important, nothing's important. So you can only focus on one or two behaviors. Like when we're working with children who have misbehaviors, you pick one to three behaviors. Um, when she's working with a child with uh, autism, she's working on one or two things at a time. We're developing those habits. And in the science, we collect that on to see that they're gaining some sort of proficiency. We're not just doing it will willy-nilly. We let measurement guide our decision-making. That's a staple of our science.
1: Right. So essentially what we do is we take a bigger <laughs> skill or a larger skill and yes. break it down into smaller components. Right. Right? And what we call like, like a task analysis, right? So we take a bigger skill, maybe like tying your shoes, right? Like <clears throat> washing your hands, things like that. Making a sandwich, right? So these are all kind of complex skills, right? You might not think there are lots of steps. Think <clears throat> about brushing your teeth, right? So these are complex, complex skills or complex tasks with a lot of different behaviors in them, right? And so what we do is we teach. Sometimes we have to teach each one of those components. Reaching,
2: grabbing. Pulling all these things are behaviors that you have to teach and teachers need to learn how to task analyze, right? You have to chunk. They call it chunking, right? Yeah. Your your lessons and leaders or trainers need to chunk or task analyze their training because you have to break things down into their components to teach those. So then you have these composite skills and we have to do this in the fight game. I have to first teach the right cross. I teach the jab. Then we start to put it all together, but I have to teach one component at a time one to two components at a time otherwise people just won't learn and we're so eager for people to do things what it is is you need to go slow to go fast and same thing with individual performance and same thing with organizational performance when we talk about organizational behavior management we're all we're talking about is the group right so we're working with groups of people you know the whole school or a great group or a select group of teacher a classroom right so these these principles of the science of human behavior apply to the individual, the group, and the organization as a whole.
0: Yeah, you know, when I'm just, the question I have kind of as a follow-up is, we know that teachers are so swamped, or at least that's the way I've felt with all that has to be taught and all those things. So what advice would you give teachers, you know, who want to, you know, try to focus on those one or two things at a time in, a, in an environment that really They're being told they need to force these several things at one time.
2: Yeah. So, yeah. So first of all, I want to say this to both teachers and leaders that listen. Um, You can do it, right? You don't have a sense of self-efficacy if you're not. If you come in and you have an expectation of what teaching is and what the outcome is going to be, it doesn't meet, right? Right away, you're kind of behind the ball. It's not your fault. Think about the analogy I already made. I cannot throw my fighter into the cage of the ring expect they're going to be successful if I haven't not provided them with instruction, modeling, lots of rehearsal and feedback, skill acquisition, and fluency, right? Becoming, you know, very effective without thinking about it, Uh, you know, automatic behavior requires a ton of repetition, a ton of repetition. So if they're not, don't think that they can't do it. They can do it, but they're going to have to learn on the job. Because because the, the, if they believe they can't do it, they're not going to even try to. It's, there's something called uh, value expectancy theory. It's not in the science, but really you might value something. But if, uh, if you don't believe that you're going to get the outcome you want, you're not even try it. They can get the outcome. When they try things, they have to set small goals. You can't look for... Big change. You have to look for what we call these leading indicators, right? These small changes. So, for the school leader, a leading indicator things are going the right way it might be that you, know, uh, you your discipline problems. You know, you have a few less referrals or suspensions, or you don't have as many uh, staff calling in. That's a leading indicator, right? let you know you have some people coming up smiling to you more. More people at your posts in the morning, right? There are these things for a teacher. It might be that kids are starting to ask you questions. Um, you know, one kid's in a seat a little bit more. Um, you know, the kid that was calling out uh, ten times an hour has called out eight times an hour. So it's hard to see that, right? We tend to be poor observers of our own behavior and the behaviors of the other. And this is where measurement really tends to help us because that eight, going from ten to eight, is actually a twenty percent improvement in performance. And if that was a grade, that would be huge. So one of the goals of the leaders is to help teachers be better observers. And this is where data comes in. This is where these formative assessments come in. And aligning the teacher behavior with improvement in student behavior, right, i.e. in learning is behavior, that's the indication of it, um, becomes very critical. So they, teachers and leaders need to know that they can do it, but they're going to have to pull on resources themselves. And if they're in their district and they're getting these sit and kits, they need to stand up and say, this is not okay. You just gave us 20 things to learn and you told it to us and telling is not teaching. It's costing the children, it's costing the staff, it's costing leaders and it's costing our country $7.7 billion a year in a shortage of hundred thousand teachers. And that's our opinion. I can't
0: argue with, with any of that. So, so like I said, we're, we're excited to uh, see you guys out uh, in San Antonio at AIE. So what can people expect uh, from your session out there?
1: Well, um, we're super excited, you know, like we said, um, but we just want people to kind of get a basic understanding about the science, right? And that the science, science of human behavior, behavior analysis, can be applied to any setting, any population, anybody, right? Right. So
2: we, we really want to drive that home. Yeah, and um, uh, we're going to talk about we're two separate sessions. The one is called Quick Wins, Accelerating School Transformation through Science, Engagement, and Leadership. And that's going to be all about how to find this small change just to engage your folks, rise right? so up your leader, and you want to make change in your school. What is it that you're going to target first? You might want to get this thing later on, but what can you target first to engage? And by the way, in the science, we call engagement value-added behavior that's reinforced. So if they, they do this thing, something meaningful occurs as a result of it. And again, the meaningful thing might be they see things are getting a little bit better as a result of their behavior. So teaching leaders about quick wins. And the other one's about the science of leadership, which any, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, anything that, any any leadership theory that's out there at the root of that is a science. So you can have your own style of doing it, but it's about creating habits and we're going to give some concrete steps for developing habits for people.
0: Perfect. Perfect. So I definitely want to be respectful of your time because we're we're pushing an hour now. So before we let you go and ask you the final question, for people that want to connect with you that might not be going to AIE, what are the best ways for them to do that?
1: Sure. So you can find us on on our website. So we're at www.teampbs.com, mm-hmm. so you can reach out to us there.
2: Yep, you also connect with us on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. You have our names, Paul Gavoni or Anika Costa. hmm
0: Awesome.
2: Awesome. And, um, you know, I want to say the viewers, are, I hope folks are going to come out and uh, check us out. And if you happen to be a mixed martial arts fan. <laughs> In the mixed martial arts world, uh, I go by the name of Dr. Polly Gloves, so if you Google my name and you're interested about what the science of human behavior looks like in the fight game, because it can be applied anywhere, go ahead and uh, check that out.
0: Yeah, we're going to have to introduce you to uh, a friend of ours that does some photography on the side is coming with us to do some pictures for us, because we don't have a lot of professional pictures, and he's a, he's a fighter, so I'm going to have to introduce it to you. He's... Uh, I think I, I, he's been doing boxing recently. I think he was like a kickboxer for a while. He kind of dabbles in everything. So I'll have to make sure I introduce to you so you guys can have a chat. But uh, before we ask you the last question, just want to say I'm super grateful that you reached out and that you could take some time with us. And we're, uh, we're really excited to see you guys in San Antonio. Yeah. We're, we're
2: happy too. to share our, our
1: science with, with hmm. teachers, with awesome. educators.
0: Awesome. Right. So, so the final question we got for you tonight is: you know, when it's all said and done, what do you hope your legacy is of your work?
2: Oh, I, I, no <laughs> doubt about it. Um, we really, you know, we really want to impact not not a school, not the, just the district not the state we want to make an impact at the federal level yeah we want to spread this the principles of science human behavior i.e organizational behavior management at that level and have it spread down because if everybody understood it'd be some basic principles from those level down we would save so much money we would not get this teacher attrition you know we wouldn't be spending 7.7 billion dollars students would be far more successful we wouldn't have all this argument this and that we want to have people trying to put up more charter schools. I'm not saying charter schools are bad, but they're not targeting the right, the root cause, right? Why are so many teachers unsuccessful? Why are so many leaders unsuccessful? And these are the reasons. They're not being prepared correctly. And when they're in the school, they're not being led or coached correctly.
0: <clears throat> awesome. Well, again, I, I wish I could spend all night with you, but I know you guys got things going on. And like I said, super appreciative for you coming on the podcast tonight. Great, Kyle. Th- thank you, brother. Thanks thank so much.
1: You Kyle. We'll see you at AIE.